Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. Are you in need of a change of heart? Senior Pastor Rob O'Neill explains how that can only come from a relationship with God in his sermon titled, Righteous Relationships. Now here is Pastor Rob. How then can disciples of Jesus have righteous relationships? You see, as we get into relationships, particularly the closest relationships in our lives, we all have expectations of those relationships. France and Australia, two nations, discovered what it's like to have expectations of one another. If you have been following the news in the past year, you may have seen that there was a bit of a diplomatic dust-up between France and Australia over a contract to buy submarines. Now, of course, this has everything to do with expectations, but the story played out in a way that sounds a little bit like, shall we say, a teenage romance. You see, it turns out that France and Australia were in a relationship, and they were Facebook official in this relationship. You see, Australia really liked France because France has wonderful diesel-powered submarines that they wanted to buy a whole bunch of. But then, well, Australia fell, fell in love with a new person and started dating the United States because they figured out that the United States has really cool nuclear-powered submarines, and they wanted to buy nuclear-powered submarines from the United States. So they got in a dating relationship with the United States. Well, France was jilted. And France said, we found out about this on Facebook. To which, to summarize Australia's response, it was really, but I texted. (laughs) And so launched a long diplomatic kerfluffle between all three countries. Everything seems to be smoothed over now, though, because Australia has basically promised that they would return France's class ring. So everybody is happy. You see, we have expectations of our relationships. And so then to say, how can we have righteousness in those relationships? Well, that is a high bar in relationships. You see, the close relationships that we're talking about are those ones like the relationships we have with our families. In some ways, maybe even the relationships that we have within marriages or our close friendships. You see, these close relationships bring out the best in us. But at the same time, these close relationships expose the worst of us. And so maybe righteousness in relationships is exactly what we as disciples of Jesus need. You see, in the New Testament, Jesus consistently calls us as his disciples to a surpassing kind of righteousness, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Jay talked about this last week, and he quoted for you from Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds or surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is telling his disciples and his followers, you have to have a higher, a surpassing righteousness over that of the empty works-based righteousness of your religious leaders, the pattern that you've seen and learned growing up. He's saying, you need a righteousness that gets to the heart of the matter. 
And so this whole concept of surpassing righteousness focuses disciples on the heart of the matter. Because you see, we have hearts, and those hearts can be sinful or they can be righteous. And when our hearts are sinful, those sinful hearts ultimately lead us to sinful actions. And so Jesus is wise to recognize that we have to do something about the heart. Now, in the passage from the New Testament that we're reading today, Jesus talks about righteousness in our relationships. And we have such very high expectations of our relationships. And so we want to know, how can we have righteousness in these relationships? Which leads us today to three heart changes. Three heart changes that help disciples have right relationships. But before we dig into the Bible and see what those three heart changes are, let's pray and ask God to be with us as we study his word today. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence today, we we come before you and you know, we, we openly say to you that we have very high expectations of our relationships. There's so many things we want from them, so many things that we hope for from them. Father, we praise you today because you have wired us for close relationships. You've wired us to love you, and you created us to love one another and to be in community. So, Father, today as we study your word, would you show us what it is you want for us? Would you show us the pathway to righteous relationships? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we turn now to the word, we're going to find that the first heart change that helps disciples have righteous relationships is that disciples don't flirt with adultery. They are mentally pure. Disciples don't flirt with adultery. They are mentally pure. Jesus addresses adultery and mental purity in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, which read, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus begins with the common ground of what everyone would have known. You have heard it said, Jesus began. And then he quotes the Ten Commandments, and it's, it's forbidding of adultery. He quotes Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. It says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, in this case, the word adultery means very simply, you shall not have sexual intercourse with a person who is not your spouse. Jesus affirms this. He's saying that his disciples do not flirt with adultery. But then having covered that ground, he gets now instead to the heart of the matter. And he says that his disciples do not even lust. Lust is the matter at the heart of all things when it comes to adultery. And by lust, Jesus is talking about entertaining impure thoughts about another person. And he's saying that if those impure thoughts take, take root in our minds, it is a sin, and it is very similar to the sin of adultery itself. So lust is not the desire that we feel for our spouse rightly. Lust instead is a thought that objectifies another person. Lust, you see, is a thought that lodges in our minds, and having lodged in our minds, 
We turn that thought over and over again. And when lust lodges itself in its minds, Jesus knows that 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 thought in our hearts, that lust in our hearts, is bound to lead to some type of improper action. And Jesus says, disciples of his are mentally pure. He reinforces then the seriousness of this teaching in the verses that follow. He says, first of all, in these two images that are difficult for us to read. He says, if your eye, your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out of your body. If your right hand, the one that is most useful to you, is the thing that causes you to sin, cut it off. And then he says, in both cases, it's better for you to go through life without something that you find essential than it is for you to find yourself at the end of all things dead and in hell. And so we ask ourselves the question, does Jesus mean this teaching literally? If a part of our body is involved in our sin life, should we excise that part of our bodies? Origin of Alexandria believed that Jesus should be taken very literally. Origin of Alexandria was a third century Christian theologian. Now, the simple fact of the matter is Origen had some odd thoughts. Origen thought that the material world around us was a lie by evil meant to keep us from God, and he lived a very radically ascetic life. And so when lust became a problem for him, he determined the parts of his body that were responsible for lust and cut those parts off. He took Jesus' teaching very literally. His actions were debated in the 4th century, in 325, at the Council of Nicaea. And the Council of Nicaea asked, is Jesus' teaching here to be taken literally? And they concluded, no, it was not to be taken literally and acted upon in this manner. But then what does Jesus mean when he says this in Matthew chapter 5? Well, to understand what Jesus means, we find Paul talking about a very similar thing in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, where he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, when Paul is talking about the flesh here, he's not talking about our bodies. He's talking about our sin natures. And what Paul is saying here is that if we allow our sin nature to take over, and if we give in and say yes to our sin nature over and over again, it will kill us spiritually. But on the reverse, he's saying that if by the power of the Holy Spirit we resist our sin nature and say no to it repeatedly, well, then it begins to put to death our sin nature and we live spiritually. And when we understand what it is the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, we begin to understand what it is that Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5. He's telling us to resist our sin nature and put it to death. But this leads us to a question. If Jesus says that the heart of the matter for us is combating lust, then we have to ask the question, what inputs are we allowing into our minds? because inputs are constantly coming into our minds. And the inputs that we allow into our minds form the content of our thoughts. But not only do the inputs that we allow into our minds form the content of our thoughts, but those thoughts form channels in our thinking. And the channels in our thinking become channels that future thoughts slip down very easily. 
And so the inputs that are coming into our minds shape the content and the nature of our thoughts. Now, we are being barraged by inputs constantly. If you are living in the hyper-connected digital world, then you are being literally barraged on a constant basis by inputs. And if those inputs come from our culture, we know this about our culture. Our culture is hypersexualized which means that if our inputs are coming from our culture and through the digital realm, we are being barraged constantly by hypersexualized content that then forms the content of our thoughts and creates channels in our thinking. Which leads me back to that question. What inputs are you allowing into your mind? But actually, let me rephrase it now, because the question really needs to become, What inputs do you want to allow into your mind now? Because you see, if we are to make the heart change that helps disciples have righteous relationships, it begins with the fact that disciples don't flirt with adultery. They are mentally pure. The second heart change that we find in Matthew chapter 5, though, is that disciples don't casually divorce. They are intentionally faithful. Jesus speaks about divorce and faithfulness in verses 31 and 32, where he goes on to say, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So now we begin once again with the common ground of what has been said, what the people listening to Jesus in the first century, his disciples, would have known. And they knew that the Mosaic law proclaimed that a husband wanting to divorce his wife should give her a certificate of divorce. Moses put this in place in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 and following, I'm just going to read verse 1 for you because Moses begins, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, then it goes on. And if you're interested, you should continue reading what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 24. But what we find here is Moses securing the rights of women in the ancient world because he's saying to husbands, you cannot simply kick a woman out of your house. That's cruel. He's saying that if you are going to divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate because the certificate makes her status with you clear. And if her status with you is clear, then she's free to pursue other means of staying safe and secure. She may even marry again. And so the certificate of divorce was to secure the rights of women. But what did this mean, and how did this work out? It was debated through the centuries. By the first century, there were two great schools of thought on what it looked like in that world to secure a divorce. They were symbolized by two of the great rabbis of the first century, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel. They had competing teachings on how divorce worked. Rabbi Shammai, interpreting what Moses said, said that a husband can only divorce his wife if she has committed the gravest of offenses. And Rabbi Hillel agreed. A husband could only divorce his wife if she has committed a grave offense, like burning his meal. 
or a grave offense like him finding someone who is more attractive. In that case, then, a certificate of divorce is permissible and the relationship can be ended. And that's where the debate stood when Jesus got to the heart of the matter. Jesus, in getting to the heart of the matter, forbids his disciples to engage in casual divorce. Jesus says that the certificate of divorce that Moses allowed was simply an accommodation and it wasn't what God intended. Jesus addressed what God intended in more detail in Matthew chapter 19. And he explained why divorce was barely permissible or possible under any circumstances. He said, the Bible teaches us that that husbands and wives become one flesh when they marry. Now, in speaking about husbands and wives becoming one flesh when they marry, of course, Jesus was talking about the physical, intimate union between husband and wife. But he's also talking about the fact that in the sight of God, those who are two become one, and they cannot be naturally separated and taken apart. He says, that which God has put together, let no one separate. And so he says, what Moses wrote was an accommodation of our own sinful hearts and our own stubborn tendencies. And so he's saying in the heart of the matter that disciples cannot casually divorce. Now, please understand that we're not here to have a full discussion of divorce and remarriage today. That is a very complicated topic that warrants its own treatment. And to do so, we would have to look at multiple passages in the New Testament to understand what Jesus is saying about divorce and remarriage. And this isn't a sermon on divorce. This is a sermon on disciples and righteous relationships. But we come away with a critically important principle here about righteous relationships, particularly marriages. And that is the disciples of Jesus are intentionally faithful. That's what we see in what Jesus is saying. He's telling his disciples that as they enter into a marriage, they are to enter into that marriage with an intent to stay and be faithful. Disciples are not to enter into a marriage with an escape clause, a quick way out if we find that we don't like the way things are going. And so how then might we be intentionally faithful? Well, if you look at the context, if you look at what Jesus has already said in the Sermon on the Mount, you find how it is that we are to be faithful. If you go back to some of the verses that Pastor Jay read and preached on last week, they address anger. And Jesus is saying that as disciples of his, we cannot entertain ungodly anger. Ungodly anger is like a root that has to be pulled out of our lives. And if we don't pull that root out, it leads to contempt and bitterness. And if we are to be intentionally faithful in marriage, there's no room for contempt and bitterness and ungodly anger. In what Jesus has just said about lust, we find important clues as well. Because in his teaching about lust, he's telling us that we cannot look around inside of a marriage and find ourselves entrapped by things we find to be better and more attractive than what we have in our marriages. If we are to be intentionally faithful in marriage, we have to guard what we put our eyes on and what we allow our minds to think about. And in the verses that are going to come and what Jesus says just after what I've read to you now, we find Jesus talking about oaths. And if we are to be intentionally faithful inside of our marriages, then we have to be people of honesty who do what we say we're going to do and mean what we say when we say it. 
So disciples of Jesus don't casually divorce. They are instead intentionally faithful. Now, the third heart change that helps disciples to have righteous relationships is disciples don't rely on oaths. They're habitually honest. Disciples don't rely on oaths. They are habitually honest. We find Jesus talking about oaths and honesty in verses 33 through 37, where he continues. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So again, Jesus is beginning with the common ground of what everyone has heard and what everyone knows. And once again, he is referring back to the Ten Commandments because the discussion about oaths begins with a commandment against taking the Lord's name in vain. We can't do that. Then as the law continues, Moses unpacks that and says, you cannot even tell a lie and swear by it in the name of the Lord because that is taking the Lord's name in vain. Then by the time we reach Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, Moses, in continuing to unpack this through the Lord, tells us that we can't even promise on an oath that we will do something and then not do it because we've taken the Lord's name in vain. Numbers 30, verse 2 reads, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So now we have a problem because you see this means that if a person makes an oath that they're going to do something and then fails to do it, they have a problem. If someone says something and swears to it in the name of the Lord and then it turns out to be false through a lie or through a mistake, they have a problem. And so then there comes a problem in society of how do we exchange truth? How do we reassure one another of our truthfulness? How do we enter into agreements and how do we make contracts with one another? And so in the ancient Jewish society, they began trying to find workarounds. Instead of swearing in the name of the Lord, they would find something else that sounded vaguely holy that they could swear in the name of, but it wouldn't be the Lord, so they wouldn't have caught themselves in the trap. And the discussion about what is holy and what is not holy, what can be sworn by safely and what invokes truly the name of the Lord, you find the remains of that discussion in what Jesus is saying about his disciples swearing by things like Jerusalem, by the hair on their own heads. That's the common ground of where the discussion was when Jesus picks it up in Matthew chapter 5. But Jesus gets to the heart of the matter with the habit of honesty. Because Jesus reminds everyone that no matter what they swear by in this earth, God made it and owns it. And so we are, no matter what we're swearing by, ultimately swearing by God. And Jesus interjects a note of humility. And he says, please understand what you can and cannot change in this world. He says, you can't even make a hair on your head white or black, not for centuries and not without help. 
And so he tells us to engage habitually in honesty. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, what does the habit of honesty look like in our lives? It means that disciples of Jesus do what we say we're going to do. You see, one of the reasons that we invoke oaths in the first place is because we have done something that undermines the impression that the other person has that we will follow through and do what we say we've done. If we're invoking oaths, we've already not been honest. We do what we say we're going to do. And then we are who we say we are and who we appear to be. One of the reasons that we evoke oaths and use words is to try to reshape people's picture and opinion of us. And Jesus says, don't try to manage other people's opinion of you and their picture of you. Be who you are in front of them. And Jesus is also telling us to tell the truth. We are to be people of the truth. And that means that we tell even uncomfortable truths. But in all of our truth-telling, Jesus is telling us, be honest, but we are to be honest compassionately. There's no reason to be unkind in our telling of truth. So disciples, we're to have righteousness in relationships. We don't rely on oaths. We are instead habitually honest. Now, as we back up and we look at all these things and we think about the concept of surpassing righteousness applied to relationships, and we come away with a critically important point, and that is that God deals with our hearts, then our actions. God deals with our hearts, then our actions. Anne Atwater and C.P. Ellis demonstrate really powerfully how God changes hearts and then changes actions. Anne Atwater was a woman, a single mom, living in Durham, North Carolina, raising two girls on her own in the 1960s. She lived in a dilapidated house on a street that was not paved, and she became an advocate for housing for people. C.P. Ellis lived nearby, He also lived in a dilapidated house on a street that was unpaved, and he too struggled to make ends meet for his family. Atwater, of course, was a black woman, and Ellis was a white man. In trying to deal with the frustrations that life gave her, Atwater became an activist. And Ellis, in order to deal with his frustrations, joined the Ku Klux Klan. The two were at odds with one another, actively and frequently. But then in 1971, Durham, North Carolina, was integrating the school systems. And before integration, they pulled together a 10-day meeting of the community, seeking common ground and solutions to their problems. And they asked Atwater and Ellis to chair the committee that ran those meetings. Ann Atwater and C.P. Ellis hated each other. The story is told by Ann Atwater that in a meeting, she had a penknife and she pulled it on Ellis. And, and was, she says, I don't know what I was going to do with it, but I pulled it on him. C.P. Ellis admits that he had a machine gun in the trunk of his car just in case things went bad. But as they began talking, they began realizing some things. First of all, they realized that they were both active professing Christians. And secondly, they realized that they had so many of the same problems 
And they realized that their fighting with one another was damaging the very people that they were there to help, the children. And their hearts began to change. And after their hearts began to change, their actions began to change. And Atwater and Ellis became lifelong friends. Changes of the heart precede changes in our actions. God is the one who changes our hearts. You see, the hearts that we have, these are the place from which all kinds of things arise for us. Our thoughts, our emotions, our convictions, our desires. Some of the things that come out of our heart are some of the most noble things that ever come out of us. But the things that come out of our heart are also sometimes the most sinful things that come out of us. Now, it is a fantasy to think that our hearts just simply change on their own. It just doesn't happen. It's also a fantasy to think that by simply changing our minds, we can flip a switch and change our hearts. God changes hearts. Our hearts begin to change when the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sinfulness and of our need for God. The change pace really picks up quickly when we accept forgiveness in Jesus Christ and we are regenerated, we're adopted as sons and daughters of God and we're filled with eternal life and the implications of new life now. And change in our hearts continues as God puts his Holy Spirit into us and sanctifies us over years and decades. God is the one who changes hearts. And that's why it's so critically important to remember that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is addressed to his disciples. After gathering crowds at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus went up on the side of a hill apart from those crowds, and he called his disciples to himself to teach them. Why is that so important? Because the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are not a set, a collection of good ideas. They're not pro tips. They're not life hacks that we can apply so that we can live successful and happy lives. That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is. The Sermon on the Mount calls us to do some very difficult things. The Sermon on the Mount addresses the heart of the matter in us, and hearts do not change until we have Jesus Christ, forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And so it's fundamentally important to remember that the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to disciples of Jesus Christ. Because it's disciples of Jesus Christ who have the hope of righteous relationships, which leaves us with a fundamentally important question today. Are you ready to become a disciple of Jesus? Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.